This is ContactTalkRadio.com. Consciousness in action. And you are taking action into your consciousness by tuning into Contact Talk Radio. And on TuneIn.com, Hing.fm, and Upsnap Mobile. Contact Talk Radio. Welcome to Seek Reality Radio with Roberta Grimes. Joyous conversations about what the afterlife evidence and modern science combine to tell us is true about your reality. You have nothing to fear. You are eternal and you are perfectly loved. Knowing the truth changes everything. Now, here is Roberta. There is one reality. There always has been, of course, just one reality. But because both mainstream science and mainstream Christianity are belief systems, neither has looked at all the evidence for what that one reality might be. And in the cracks between science and religion, a tremendous body of evidence has been building for nearly 200 years that tells us what actually is going on. In fact, we have enough core evidence now to be able to understand how mainstream science and what it tells us and mainstream Christianity and what that tells us fit together with what we're learning from the afterlife evidence into just one true reality. And what the evidence tells us turns out to be more wonderful than even our most optimistic imaginings. Now we know that you are an eternal being. You never began. You never will end. And knowing that changes everything. Our guest this time is the wonderful Dr. Stafford Betty. He's a professor of religion, and I love the fact that he's working in the traditional sort of academic field. He's at California State University in Bakersfield, and he's spent a lot of time studying what the dead have to tell us about the one reality in which we live. His book is The Afterlife in Unveiled. And I recommend everybody read this because it'll give you just in a very, very few, amazingly few words, all the evidence you're going to need to understand uh, what really is going on. Welcome, Stafford. I'm so glad you're here. Thanks, Roberta. That's that's very kind of you. It's good to be here. <laughs> what, what we're going to do first is hear a little about your history so people know who it is uh, that's giving them this information. And then we'll delve into um, some of the things that you've learned about especially the period around death and right after death, because that's an area where I've done a lot of work, and I think your research is deeper than mine. So how did you get into this? You're, you're a professor of religion. What, right. where, where did all this start? Well, it started from a kind of disappointment over um, the limitations of what I learned in graduate school. Um, now I have a Ph.D. in theology from Fordham, which is a you know a reputable Jesuit university, and and what was done there, and is still being done there, is exactly what's being done at Harvard and Princeton, places like that. And there's almost no, uh, there's almost no concern with what we call paranormal or psychic reality. Um, it's as if that's simply not, uh, a, I don't know, a respectable uh, place to look at. And uh, that strikes me as, um, as a kind of way to ignore the really big questions. And modern philosophy is particularly... Uh, uh, guilty of doing that, the existence and nature of of the Creator, the spiritual nature of humans, survival beyond death, accountability to a higher power, the nature of the afterlife. These are things that contemporary philosophy snubs and is almost embarrassed to take seriously, and usually doesn't. 
So I just had to branch out into what I thought were the big questions. I wasn't getting it from standard academic approaches, and, and so that's, that's, where I, that's where I got to where I am. Wow. So you were doing this right after graduate school? or Pretty much so. I, I, uh, pretty much so. It, right about the time I got my Ph.D., I realized uh, it, what happened was in 1975, um, um, Raymond Moody, published that incredibly important book, right. Life After Life, about the near-death experience. And uh-huh. I was there. I, I mean, I was right there. And, and I had been kind of an agnostic and uh, a very unhappy agnostic up to that point and uh, was doubting everything that my faith had given me and, and uh, was feeling bereft of, <laughs> of it. And when that book came around, uh, that just changed everything for me. Uh, because there, at last, was empirical evidence that there was an afterlife. Um, I wasn't having to depend on church doctrine uh, or uh, scripture, or uh, and certainly science wasn't any help. Uh, and so that's that's how it all started, and that happened a long time ago. It did. I think it was a transformative book for a lot of us. But you're telling me you were a professor of religion. You got a Ph.D., and you started teaching religion, and you were an agnostic? Uh, I... Um, Let's put it this way. Uh, I had gone to Fordham after I had lost my faith and wanted to find it. I wanted to see if there was some way to get it back. And uh, what happened was that I discovered uh, Eastern religions rather than uh, just more and more Christianity. I hadn't expected that. And that started, uh, that really started a, a quest, a serious quest. It gave me optimism, hope that there was more to religion. Uh, than what I had learned as a boy from one standard <laughs> Christian approach. So I, I was still agnostic. I wasn't at all sure, but I wanted. I knew that I wanted to be sure. I knew that I wanted to believe, but I just didn't. I was too good an empiricist, too good a scientist to let myself believe things that I wasn't sure of. And so uh, to say that I was an agnostic is technically correct, but it was a, I was a very unhappy agnostic and wanted to move <laughs> off that. Yeah, yeah. I. It's funny. You and I came at all of this from opposite directions because yes. I had those two experiences of light and childhood. So I've always known that yes. there's something behind the curtain. No question in my mind. I just was trying to figure out how to find it. And for, for, for <laughs> lucky me, you. That's all I can say, Roberta. Because <laughs> you know you have you have innate gifts that I don't have. Uh, I'm very much an empiricist, and I think that's what makes me important. Though is that I don't have any of these mystical oh, yes. aptitudes. But I, I'm a good scholar, and uh, I knew how to. I knew how to. I know how to study and put things together, and and uh, that's what I've done in my book, and that's why it's been so well received. It comes across as something that's, uh, oh, I don't know, more objective uh, than uh, other accounts, I believe, and it's got a certain little skepticism in it, but um, not enough to overturn the overwhelming evidence that seems to me to point to the reality of a spirit world and of uh, an afterlife and all of the interesting things that you uh that you mentioned in your introduction. So so what we what you teach then is not Christianity um what what you teach is eastern religions? No, uh my specialty is eastern religions as a matter of fact. So uh if I teach Christianity that's only because I've been dumped into the introductory course and have to deal with it. Oh, and, okay. Uh, so I don't I don't I'm not a, I'm not a western religion specialist but an eastern religion specialist and what I really enjoy doing is uh, is teaching my death and afterlife course, and that's the thing that, that makes me hum and gets the students really excited. So I do that once a year, and that's that's an enormously uh, uh, help. That that's that that just that stimulates me. Let's put it this way. 
so people from all walks of life would see that in the syllabus and oh, yeah. take the course. Oh, and yeah. So you have a room full of people who are skeptics? People no, who are uh, no. religionists? Uh, or who uh, actually, a- uh, all kinds. Uh, there were some skeptics. There are some people who had to take uh, a course for uh, just to graduate. They needed a course like my course. It was at the right time block and so forth, and they got in it. And these are people who consider themselves scientific uh, uh, materialists. And so uh-huh. they're really kind of shocked that any professor would even take seriously something <laughs> other than the materialist world. And so uh, some of them were were really brought around, um, and, and their lives were changed. Others were s- sort of sulking and even refused to do the reading. They just had such contempt for it going into it that they knew that there was nothing there for them, so they would do it minimally and make their C and, and then, then move on and forget about it. I, I think it's really funny. I mean, that what, what you describe, I see too. I mean, people with their fingers in their ears and their eyes sort of squeezed right. shut, going la 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 la, because they're so afraid to encounter anything that they might have to look at seriously that might disrupt their preconceived notions of what's true. Isn't that true? And it is so delightful to run into people who have who are kind of peeking through their fingers. Covering their eyes, you know, yeah. they're just sort of peeking, and they dare to take the course, and they they are deeply changed and moved, uh, and and it. I think that this course actually has the ability to to change whole generations of people because that young man will become a father and will you know introduce his yes. children differently now than he would yes. have. So, on the other hand, there are those, as I say, who don't want to take a look, and so all yeah. sorts. And they're Christians, too, who are just as adamantly opposed to what they are learning in this course because their yes. fundamentalism does not allow them to think in these new ways. And so they are just as uh, impervious to uh, new, uh, you might say, a new way of looking at the world as these scientific materialists. That's one of the things that has most surprised me because in my in my work I've discovered that Jesus told us in the Gospels, Jesus is absolutely, I can prove to you he was real, because he told us little details that we don't, we couldn't even understand until at least the 20th century, and when we started to get this good evidence that you so wonderfully include in your book. And so when I try to share that with people, they don't want to know that. Fundamentalist Christians are so hung up on this theology, which comes from Paul, doesn't come from Jesus, that says, A, that God is nasty enough, unforgiving enough, mm-hmm. to need to enjoy watching Jesus be murdered in order to forgive us for something that somebody else did. Isn't I mean, that an absurd doctrine? It's, it's <laughs> and absurd. I was raised on it. And, you and, know? and then you start saying, but Stafford, unlike you, I was a devout Christian for a long time after uh-huh. I started doing this research, because again, I, I knew that there was a God, and that, you know, God had a religion, and here it was. Right. right. But then suddenly, when I suddenly understood how absurd it was, I realized how insulting it is uh-huh. to God and yeah, demeaning it is to Jesus to believe that stuff. I know. I totally agree. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but, and so, so, so why do they cling to it? And, and I, I've asked, it took me a while to figure it out. They cling to it because it's easy. If, uh-huh. you, if, you, if you just go, if you take that vote, whether it's Catholic or Protestant, almost doesn't matter, although you do uh-huh. have to choose one, and one of them is going to hell, and you've got to try to choose the right one. Um, if you choose it, 
you can wait till your deathbed. Just say, Jesus, you're my savior. I need a free boat. And, and you get this get out of hell card mm-hmm. that you get to just pass in at the gate and you go right to the, right to the throne room. Yeah. And yeah. If it's, yeah. if it's that easy, of course, everybody's going to want to do it. Uh-huh. Yeah, I think there is an invitation, particularly in Protestant Christianity, to to be lazy about the spiritual life, because there's yes. the belief that if you have the right belief, then you're saved. There's nothing that you can do to deserve to be saved. Um, all you have to do is hit your wagon to Jesus, and he will save you, which is, of course, uh, all the evidence suggests a very different picture. We are oh, yeah. responsible oh, yeah. for all that we do, and yes. we mold our characters, and I mean, it's the character that us, will be dealt with. Gotta listen to and actually do what he said. That's how he's trying to save us from yeah. the negativity, which otherwise could consume our afterlife. But yeah. um, I, I actually have had friends. I have a dear friend who's a fundamentalist Christian, and he went to the uh, deathbed of someone who he told me was a terrible guy. All the thoughtful things this guy had done. Mm-hmm. So he came back, and I said, "Well, you know, after the fellow had died, and I said, well, how did it go?'" And he said, "Well, at least he got saved." <laughs> yeah, I the know. Last minute, uh, this this guy who had done nasty stuff all his life just mm-hmm. said, "Okay, I accept Jesus as my personal savior," and mm-hmm. bingo, all mm-hmm. of what he had done in his life meant nothing. It just mattered that he was saved. Yeah, well, now, he's going to be in for a real shock. <laughs> is it for a surprise, as is everyone who believes that sort of thing? Mm-hmm. But what, I guess what bothers me most as a partisan for God, and, and I mean, my allegiance is to Jesus, frankly, and only to mm-hmm. Jesus and, and, and the God that he brings into our lives. Okay. Um, what, what, what bothers me about it is that it's so insulting to God. Mm-hmm. To say that he would be so petty and nasty. I've actually asked Christian parents, okay, you're a parent. Which of your children would you most enjoy watching be murdered so you'll be willing to forgive the others? And they're appalled that I would say that. How could you say that? I know. But that's, these, that's yeah, these are people who refuse to think. And uh, they're comfortable with what they've been told. And it, uh, they just don't want to move. It's like they have more important they want to give their time to more important things like, uh, you know, uh, making money and, and, and gaining worldly power. And they just want their religion to be left alone. Keep it in a nice little safe box, and it'll be it'll come in handy at death, and we won't worry about it. <laughs> and, I, that's and, true, Stafford. Absolutely yeah. right. And mm-hmm. and it makes it very hard, though, to to reach people like that with mm-hmm. with God's truth, and it is God's truth. Yeah, but they no, believe I agree. It's man's truth. Yeah, uh, and, and it's but it's hard because. As your book points out, and as my research shows, just the fact is, we're here to learn, and mm-hmm. it's not an easy school, and we need to get, we need to do well in this we do. school. That's right. It's very exciting. I mean, it's stimulating. I love the challenge that uh, that the truth presents me with. You yes. know, I know I have so much to learn, and <laughs> you know, the most important thing we can do in life is to give back what is best to give back what we do best uh, for the good of all. Um, You know, St. John of the Cross said that the purpose of creation, that the purpose of God was to make the soul great. And that's what we need to become. We need to become great souls, and this is a great proving ground for doing exactly that if if we use our time well. Yeah, and that's really true. I'm glad it energizes you. It does energize me, too. But it sure did make me clean up my act when I really understood what was going on. Um, you can't harbor negative thoughts because negative thoughts will color your reality. That's right. Um, there, yeah, there's no, this is a school from which there is no recess. Um, 
you 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 do you do straighten out and fly right when you really understand what's going on. But that's a good thing too, I would think. It is an absolutely good thing. As a matter of fact, <laughs> I think that uh, that uh, I would put it this way: the the kind of research that that you and I do is important because, first of all, th- there's the the afterlife accounts that come to us from the world's scriptures, not just Christianities, but from, for example. If you want to find out something that's really rather bizarre, go and study the afterlife beliefs of Muslims, for example. But uh, I won't pick on Muslims. You can look at any of the old scriptures and see that they're essentially implausible. Yes. That, uh, that they just, they tend to be rather uninspiring, sometimes even off-putting. And I, I find the book of Revelation, parts of it, to be really off-putting, and I I can understand why Christians are very reluctant to die and want to live as long as possible at any cost. Um, It doesn't sound like a very interesting place to to go. The other problem is is that the the notion of extinction is so gloomy, it produces a kind of melancholy. Uh, and, And, you know, to leave people with that is not something I'm willing to do. I, I work to help people overcome that melancholy. And finally, as you say, I mean, the invitation to immorality and crime in a world where there is no accountability is unanswerable uh, without um, a spiritual point of view and reference point. That is such an important point. Mm -hmm. Um, I I absolutely agree with that, and that's why what we're doing is important. That's why we can't allow the teachings of religion and the teachings of science to rule the world because they're leading the world to uh, chaos and, and destruction, quite apart from what they do to individuals who right. are being led that way. I'm so sorry to have to break here, but we're going to break just briefly, and when we come back, we're going to be talking more with the wonderful Dr. Stafford Betty. We'll be right back. there were a place that was the opposite of civilized and what if it turned out that was the place where human life finally worked when roberta grimes studied the afterlife evidence she learned more than that our lives are eternal she also discovered what we really are and to help us make the most of our lives she's begun the letters from love series of novels begin with my thomas her well-reviewed account of Thomas Jefferson's marriage. Move on to Letter from Freedom, then Letter from Money. They read like fantasy romance, but they are the glorious truth. Available on Amazon.com and in bookstores everywhere. Or stop by RobertaGrimes.com to learn more. If you're interested in communicating with the people we used to think were dead... Then don't miss the 39th Annual Conference of the Academy for Spiritual and Consciousness Studies in Scottsdale, Arizona, next July. The theme of the conference is New Developments in Afterlife Communication. Presenters from as far away as Brazil will be talking about not just mediumship, but also automatic writing and pendulum communication, and the astonishing new field of self-induced direct communication with dead loved ones. Two different presenters are working on telephones that will let us communicate with the dead directly. Go to ASCSI.org now for more information. 
That's A-S-C-S-I dot org. Join them next July and be amazed. Welcome back to Seek Reality with Roberta Grimes on the Contact Talk Radio Network. Today we're seeking reality with with a fellow seeker of enormous ability and enormous knowledge, Dr. Stafford Betty, who is a professor of Eastern religions uh, and has, as like many of us, spent his life trying to understand what's true. And uh, he's he's telling us uh, just before we broke, you were mentioning that you had looked at other. Um, religions and what they believe about reality and about the afterlife. Tell us a little more about that. Um, Eastern religions, for example, the, the Tibetan Book of the Dead has some things in it which resonate a little bit with me and which some which don't at all. Right. I agree. It's, uh, it's not a perfect match at all. And uh, <laughs> my sense is that um, they got, that uh, those Tibetan Buddhists got part of it right. Um, yes. But they got quite a bit of it wrong as well, and I don't want to to go into what's wrong about it, uh, but it is true that they put a great deal of emphasis on the light that one comes into contact with uh, soon after death. Um, First of all, they assert that there is uh, life after death, um, but they assert it much too concretely and rather, I don't know, implausibly when they say that uh, it takes 49 days between death right. and then rebirth. And, uh, you know, that's shoehorning uh, a really great experience, that is to say, the experience between death and rebirth, into a mere 49 days. And certain things are supposed to happen that are really that come out of Tibetan culture uh, and, yes. and don't strike me as, as universals. But on the other hand, there's a lot there that that strikes me as essentially uh, as, as essentially important and at least on the right track. Um, there are <clears throat> there are basically what what I like about Eastern religions is their uh, is their doctrine of karma. Uh, they put a great deal of emphasis on on how uh, on how we pay. Uh, that is to say, we experience the consequences of our deeds, and I think that's a tremendous uh, insight. And furthermore, uh, they, of course, as most of you know, say that the kinds of deeds that we uh, that we do and the kind of characters that we mold will dictate not only what our afterlife experience will be like, but what our next life back on Earth will be like. Um, I think, though, that there is quite a bit of silliness uh, in 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 some of the tit for tat thinking that one runs into, uh, especially um, among Hindus. I have a great deal of respect for Hinduism, as a matter of fact. But, you know, my Hindu friends believe that there are no accidents. They believe that everything that uh, that happens on Earth had to happen just as it did. Uh, and that is not something that I think is at all likely. It doesn't match with... Uh, right. It doesn't. It just doesn't tally. I mean, if, if, if 230,000 uh, 230, people die... Uh, you know, within the same minute from the same thing, which happened during the, um, the tsunami back in, I think it was 2004, you know, it's not possible that all of those 230,000 people could have had the same karma requiring them to die in exactly the same way. Right. <laughs> you know, it doesn't, it doesn't, that's silly. But, um, but, it, but on, on the other hand, 
there is something wonderfully, uh, to me, uh, real and even refreshing to think that we really do get what we deserve. We all hunger for justice in our world, and we don't get it often. And and to, to think that there is justice somewhere at last is is very encouraging to me. And it is yes. in the world to come where that justice is, I believe, inviolately and inevitably uh, going to be uh, encountered. So Eastern religions, let's give them a big uh, star for recognizing that fact and for recognizing, furthermore, that there's a great deal more work to be done after a single life on Earth and that we need to come back probably quite a few times to get it right because we keep flunking the course. Or at least yes. we, you know, we don't make an A plus, and we really need to to move on. And well, we don't even understand there is a course, depending on our religious background. We may not even see this as a place of learning, which, right. to me, is is um, such a waste of a life for people. It is. Oh, isn't it though? I don't think most people see it as a place of learning. I don't think they take their lives very seriously. They think it's just a place to come and, and I don't know, just have a good time, and and that's right. <laughs> basically it. But there are more and more people, I'm, I'm convinced of this, Roberta, who are really coming around to this new philosophy, this new way of looking at, at the world as, uh, as, as something that is of enormous importance. I know Steve yes. Jobs, for example, was sort of, he was just wandering around. He, wasn't, he was drifting like so many of our young people did and do until he read Autobiography of a Yogi, and it completely changed his life. Uh, and it got him going. He decided he wanted to do something that was important. He wanted to give back to the world something that uh, was unique to him, and he did. Um, and we know how he died. He died by saying, oh, wow, oh, yes. wow, oh, wow. Those were his he dying passed. words. Yes. And we, what he was doing was looking at those spirits who had come to yes. take him away into the next world. It was a right. classic deathbed experience, and he died right. just you know, seconds later. Yes. Yeah. No. That that's a great story. Um, it is for anyone for anyone who doesn't know that story. I think it was his sister. Yeah, it was one his of sister. His close, Mona Mona Simpson gave gave a eulogy and told right. um, told us all what Steve Jobs' last words were. Um, right. And there is no other explanation for that. Someone not at all. Not only that, but it's it comes straight out of my research. This yes. is very typical of of deathbed visions. Uh, and many people do have deathbed visions, particularly when they're not completely overcome by by painkillers. Uh, yes. But if they're relatively lucid and they're dying slowly, it's very, very, it's almost predictable that they're going to start saying things that will lead those around them to think, oh, they're seeing something that we don't see. Many yes. people will think, oh, my gosh, you know, they're, uh, uh, they're confused. They're not confused. They're it's just that they right. see things. You know, they see a spirit world. They have one foot in that world and one foot in our own world, and they're about to cut loose. And these spirits come to take them away. And they're often very, very beautiful and enticing and loving. And Steve Jobs Jobs had just a classic near-death experience. Yeah, which is which is. I mean, I beg your pardon. Uh, Not a near-death experience, but a a deathbed vision experience. They're two different things. And and the pioneer of near-death experiences, as you say, was Raymond Moody. And yep. then a few years ago, he wrote a pioneering work on uh, deathbed visions when he uh-huh. wrote Glimpses of Eternity, in uh-huh. which um, he, these were all shared deathbed um, uh, visions. People yeah. who had 
entered into the same experience as the person dying or or seen something at the deathbed that was extraordinary. Yeah. I didn't realize those were as common uh, until I read his book. As, yeah, as, they're quite as, common. They are. Right. right. Uh, I mean, they're mentioned even in, in standard works that respectable people can teach in university courses, even okay. in psychology courses. Of course, a psychologist is going to pass them off as hallucinations, but uh, they are at least uh, confronted, you know, Yes, but one of the things that's interesting is that the more, as you point out, the more medication people have had, the less likely they are to report that kind of experience. Yeah, I know it, and yet the psychologists would think that's the opposite. (laughs) They're hallucinating. Yeah, right. No, they haven't had any drugs at all, and yet they have these extraordinary uh, experiences. Yeah, the Um, fewer the drugs, the more likely that they will have them. As a matter of fact, it was extremely common and even predictable back before uh, people died with... uh, uh, with whatever the drug of choice is. Uh, uh, back in the Middle Ages, almost everybody who died slowly had these visions, and it was very common. And as a matter of fact, it it helped people people's faith solidify. Uh, it helped them yes. believe, oh, yes, there really is an afterlife. Look at this. <laughs> you know, yes. my dear dad is halfway there and in it. Yes, yeah. There were, in fact, um, in the early part of the 20th century, latter part of the 19th, there were Young people who died before antibiotics, uh, they would die uh, of uh, of illnesses, and there are some reports of their seeing into the the realm where they were going. And absolutely, and yeah, the walls would dissolve, and they would be reporting these extraordinary things that they saw. Right. Uh, and sometimes that would go on for a day or two before. Yes, they that's actually right. Graduated. That's exactly right. Yeah, it's not they. Uh, what what's in the literature is not just. Um, the, the the sense of having been visited by by a spirit who was loving them and basically there to uh, bring them over, but you know real uh, glimpses of the beyond which are exciting and indescribable um, and and are just breathtaking and awesome. You can you can tell it from the actual quoting yes. of the uh, of the uh, of the dying persons who have seen these things. Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the things that it's important people understand is how benign, how benevolent, how joyous um, the actual death process is for people. It's, for decent it's people. Not easy to, it's not easy right. to get there, but yeah. once you're at that, that, that process and it's beginning, um, it's nothing to fear. It's a wonderful experience. Right. Yeah, it is. And, uh, and again, we're not talking about criminals and, and uh, people who are badly addicted. They have a very different experience, unfortunately. Um, yes. But for normal people, decent people, and most people are decent, you know, they don't have to be saints, they don't have to be great or anything like that. They're going to have a gentle, um, they're going to have a gentle passing. Uh, and then uh, once they're over there, then things may, be, uh, may get more interesting. And, uh, and in fact, <laughs> everything over there within the, in the first few months or so, first few months or so, vastly interesting. And hugely yes. uh, unpredictable. We we just I really don't know exactly what to expect when I pass over, except that it will all make sense and will all be good and will all be correct and just. Yes, yes. Let's talk about that. Okay. Um, I, I tell us about judgment. This is something people fear. What tell yeah. us what your your research tells you about judgment? There is a judgment, of course. Yes, there is. Um, and it's a uh, it's um. And it, there's no escaping the the uh, the judgment, and, but it's not a judgment um, that's based on uh, that involves some sort of deity sitting on a throne. 
It's not at all. It's a self-judgment. And there's no escaping what you're going to learn from yourself. All of the scales that, have, uh, that, that, are, that are over your eyes now will be removed. And you will see with great clarity what motivated you to do what you did. And you will see with great clarity where you were noble and uh, where you were deceived in thinking that you were noble. Yeah. Uh, and you will, and this, is, this will be a tremendous revelation, and it is a tremendous revelation to every soul who dies. There's no escaping this. The judgment is you will be the judge and the jury, and, and, uh, and, and, and there won't be any deity out there who's going to be telling you where you're going to go. You will gravitate to the appropriate place. And if you don't, if you're not attracted to the things of God, to the things of spirit, you're going to be uncomfortable over there uh, initially. It may take a while before you, uh, before you become acclimated to the world of spirit. In fact, some of you, some people will be so, I don't know, you might say unadaptable, that they will be, become earthbound. They will be pulled back to the region of earth and will just hang around as what Buddhists call hungry ghosts. Uh, I call them earthbound spirits, and there's zillions of them. And these are unfortunate people who are simply uncomfortable with the world of light over there. And uh, so uh, that's one kind of judgment. You know, again, who, who, makes you, who turns you into an earthbound spirit? Well, you do. It's your character. That's, uh, yeah, that's a, it's a little troubling to think, although I think it's liberating in a way to think you're uh-huh. going to be your own judge. I've had people tell me, well, that's good because they know why they did everything they did. Uh-huh. But as you point out, we're, um, we are actually the hardest possible judge because we know what we could have done once right. we get there. We, right. we know what we plan to do, and we know all the ways we fell short. So the worst possible judge is yourself. You, you, you can't, there's no place to hide from your own awareness of your imperfections. And I think that's, it seems a little diabolical almost that that's what we face because there's, there, there, there's no pardon to come from ourselves. And uh, it, it's, in fact, the descriptions of the judgment usually have people around us telling us it, it'll get better it's you'll you'll be uh you know it's not it says it's you you did a good thing you're about to see and and all of this because you get to see your effect on other people too which is yeah, it's, it's like a, a hologram um every a little some of the people who've gone through it will say the hardest part wasn't the big things because i knew what i had done wrong but yeah. the hardest part was seeing all the little things I had done, the times I hadn't been of help to someone I could have, yeah. or I've, I said something thoughtless, or I did something yeah. thoughtless, because I got to feel how those people felt that I had affected. And um, that's very hard to forgive. It's hard to yeah. pardon it, yourself it for is. that. And, and yet, and yet um, let me just read to you from... Um, a couple of paragraphs from my book about this, because it, it seems rather grim, but it's not. Um, the, the, there is an enormous, there's a hue of mercy uh, over in the afterlife. If you are willing to confront what you've done and see it for what it is and, and regret it, and there are many things that we should regret that we've done, and if you are honest with yourself, all good happens to you. Uh, this is... This is something that, um, this is just one paragraph. Most spirits mention that some, some kind of judgment. Um, Drayton Thomas's deceased father told him the judgment consists in being able to see ourselves as we are 
and by no stretch of imagination being able to avoid seeing it. Uh, It is the judgment of God on us, lesser selves, through our higher selves. No other person could be so just a judge as we ourselves can be when facing the truth. For many, it is a terrible hour. Uh, But on the other hand, for many of us for whom it is initially terrible, it's a tremendous release in the long run. The spirit of Francis Banks says, During this crisis, one seems to be entirely alone. Yours is the judgment. You stand at your own bar of judgment. You make your own decisions. You take your own blame. You're the accused, the judge, and the jury. Another spirit warns, My past deeds crowded before me. Oh, the anguish as deeds long forgotten rose up. None of these spirits speaks of an inquisitor deity sitting on a throne. So, um, we will be confronted with what we've done, both the good and the bad, and uh, if we're wise, we will, rec- we will recognize uh, the mistakes we made, and we'll move on. And uh, there are all kinds of loving spirits on the other side who are eager to assist to us in us. any way, yes. to help us yes. if we want to move on and move ahead. And frankly, I suspect, Roberta, that you are very unlikely to have to repeat the course back on Earth because <laughs> you have confronted what it's all about. And I hope that's true of me as well. Um, I have no sure desire to come back. And I suspect that maybe I've learned what I needed to learn. I think as soon as you see the truth that you and I have seen and that we write about in our books, you've passed the course. And that's the beginning of an incredibly exciting adventure stretching out into the distant eternities uh, involving uh, Steph, just... I, we've still got to live it. Um, I, that's, that's my struggle now. I, yeah. In a sense, knowing the truth um, mm. requires that you live in a way which is, frankly, much more wonderful, but it's, it's a little more rigorous. Um, <laughs> it is. Which, fact, Absolutely. Which, We'll talk a little bit about that when we get back. What, okay. what, what comes next after the scales fall from our eyes? This is Seek Reality with Roberta Grimes on the Contact Talk Radio Network. You are an eternal being. You never begin. You never will end. That's the truth. And really knowing that truth changes everything. Our guest today is the doctor, is wonderful, Dr. Stafford Betty. And we'll be right back. there were a place that was the opposite of civilized and what if it turned out that was the place where human life finally worked when roberta grimes studied the afterlife evidence she learned more than that our lives are eternal she also discovered what we really are and to help us make the most of our lives she's begun the letters from love series of novels begin with my thomas her well-reviewed account of Thomas Jefferson's marriage. Move on to Letter from Freedom, then Letter from Money. They read like fantasy romance, but they are the glorious truth. Available on Amazon.com and in bookstores everywhere. Or stop by robertagrimes.com to learn more. If you're interested in communicating with the people we used to think were dead... Then don't miss the 39th Annual Conference of the Academy for Spiritual and Consciousness Studies in Scottsdale, Arizona, next July. The theme of the conference is New Developments in Afterlife Communication. 
presenters from as far away as Brazil will be talking about not just mediumship, but also automatic writing and pendulum communication and the astonishing new field of self-induced direct communication with dead loved ones. Two different presenters are working on telephones that will let us communicate with the dead directly. Go to ASCSI.org now for more information. That's ASCSI.org. Join them next July and be amazed. Welcome back to Seek Reality with Roberta Grimes on the Contact Talk Radio Network. We're talking with Dr. Stafford Betty, and I'm learning more about him at, in the, during the breaks. And one of the things I've learned is that, like me, Dr. Betty writes fiction as well. And one of the things he's going to do for us um, it, in the last segment here is um, give us a dramatization of what the dying process would be like for someone who had been an atheist. And and now they're confronting the end of their lives, and this is going to take a little while to do. So um, I'm going to ask him to start this now, and uh, and then we'll we'll sort of wrap up. But I've already I already know where I'm going to invite him back. So we'll we'll have a lot more time to talk with Doctor Betty. But the floor is yours. We're about to get a dramatic presentation. All right. Well, this is this is the story of a man named Kieran, who uh, who is about to die. He is an atheist. He is very convinced that he's a philosopher. He's a Ph.D. in philosophy. I know plenty of people like him, incidentally. And he doesn't believe in anything like an afterlife or spirit uh, or God. Uh, And he is confronting his own death. He's in a plane. It's heading towards the ground. It's about to crash. And it crashes in the midst of a millet field in India. Uh, The millet field approaches at tremendous speed and with a violent, flashing, pulverizing crash. The void closes round Kieran. Now, this is uh, to be taken, what follows is taken from um, a screenplay that, uh, I am, uh, that I've written and am marketing right now. This is a story of what this atheist will find uh, seconds and then minutes and then a couple of hours after his death. So, um, the first thing we see is the crash site in the field. A fiery, smoky scene. As if to make sure he is still alive, Kieran runs his hands over his chest. He feels his shirt, feels that it's open at the collar. He's amazed. He's intact. He's unhurt. He studies the fuselage of the burning plane in the millet field. The charred bodies, by the way, this is a commercial flight, 250 people aboard. So there are many more who've died. He studies the fuselage of the burning plane in the millet field. The charred bodies, most still still strapped in their seats. The many rescuers milling around as if they're lost. No, they're not rescuers. They are specters. A few drift away upward. A few more are greeted by specters long dead, who, quote, dead, who welcome them home. These welcomers shimmer with light. But most of the crash victims huddle together in confusion off to the side. They are distinguishable by their transparency. You can see through them. Some of them moan, some seem in shock. Kieran looks at all this in astonishment. Then he sees people running up. Not specters this time, but peasants. Nothing transparent about them. Some of the peasants, uh, some of the women are shrieking. A few come straight up to him. 
Karen says, everybody's dead except me. But they take no notice of him. It's as if he isn't even there. And then one of them walks right through him. Even then he doesn't understand. Not at first. But when it happens a third time, the truth blasts him with its full, is it horror? Karen, this is a voiceover. For Christ's sake, I'm dead. Good God in heaven. So all the fools of the world were right after all, and I, the philosopher? This can't be. No, this can't be. He looks down at the ground and shakes his head in utter disbelief. The voiceover continues. It can't, but it is. There couldn't have been any survivors, so I am, quote, among the dead. Oh, my God, my children. No, I mustn't think of them now. Not now. Jesus, I can even smell the burning bodies. With what? A nose? He feels it. This is absurd. Absurd. Why am I not elated? I've cheated death. Why do I feel so edgy, almost panicky? Ravi and Sonia, his children, I'll never see you again. He looks up as if at God. Voice over. You bastard. Put me out of my misery. I don't want life without my... Take it back. Take it back. I'll never see them again. Oh, my God. It's twilight now, and he moves off to the side, out of the way, watching the peasants thronging about, not knowing how to help, without a leader, lacking any supervision. Over to the side, where the specters are gathered, he sees a master specter, one of the welcomers, with several assistants, all of them glowing in aureoles of light. They organize the mob of newly dead. Master Spectre says, Residents of India only, residents only, come toward me. Come, come. The rest of you wait. We'll be picking. We'll be coming for you soon. Be patient. The Master raises and waves his hand with urgency. The newly dead scramble toward him. He says, Come together here. Come together. Don't worry about religion. We'll sort you out once we get there. The golden arms of the Master Spectre extend outward and encircle the cluster in a globe of expanding light. Like a flying saucer lifting off from the ground, the specters rise as a single ensemble, slowly at first, then faster and faster, until they disappear into the twilight at unbelievable speed. By now, there are only a few specters remaining, and they stand about in isolation. Then a specter walks up to Kieran. It's the fat American. Kieran, are you shocked? Are you as shocked as I am? The fat American says, you goddamn right I am. How the hell did we survive? Did you see those ghosts over there? We could have been one of them. Kieran, what? Survive? You don't know? You don't, you don't know you're, you're dead? You think, fat American, what are you talking about? Do I look dead to you? Peasants inspecting what's left of the body shout out to each other. Peasant number one, they're all dead. Peasant number two, look a wallet. There's money in it. Peasant number three, he won't miss it where he is. The peasant removes the money. Three men dressed in army uniforms drive up in a jeep and hop out yelling orders. First man in uniform, stand clear, stand clear. Put that down. Bring it over here. Hey, you, I'll arrest you. A peasant walks off stealthily with a briefcase. Second man in uniform, drop it. Bring it here. The peasant brings it over. Kieran sees it and recognizes it. He rushes up to the soldier. Kieran, that's mine, sir. That's mine. But the soldier doesn't hear him, doesn't see him. Kieran stands next to the soldier and watches the briefcase, guarding it. Peasants start bringing other stuff piled out of the wreck, pulled out of the wreck, and a little pile begins to grow at the soldier's feet. Kieran leans down to pick up the briefcase, which is about to be covered over, but his hand goes right through the handle. Oh, for God's sake, he says. He looks around frantically as if trying to get his bearings. He looks up into the darkening sky and yells, Help! Help! 
anybody. No one notices him. No one has come for him. He looks around fearfully. Kieran, not exactly a welcoming committee. He looks all around, mouth open, then looks up. He sees a light speeding toward him. It becomes brighter and brighter. The vividly bright light covers the screen, submerges everything, then complete darkness for five seconds. And then this is the astral world. Just a short paragraph to begin it. Very, very slowly, a light, vague and misty at first, appears. A beautiful landscape emerges as the light brightens and reveals forests, meadows, streams, hamlets nestled in garden-like loveliness, and mountains in the distance. The quality of the light is different from Earth's. It's clearer, purer. Fleecy clouds float by overhead. Birdsong. So that's how it all, that's how it ends for him. So, so he's, and, but then he would go on and learn and grow? Oh, because, absolutely. Yeah, this okay. is just the death scene. And from the rest of the novel is about how he grows over the next 20, 25 years of his life. Wow. And, uh, okay, and so, well, I, I, I guess the lesson from this is um, if we know now what is going to happen at our deaths, we're going to be a, certainly a lot less confused and a lot more positive about what's really a, a glorious experience. It is, um, right. People, people who have died tell us over and over and over again that they were, many of them, surprised at how much, that's why I entitled my book The Fun of Dying. It was fun. I've, I've heard from people who say, it's not fun, cancer's not fun. No, it's not fun to get there. But right. when you actually are at the moment of your death, not only is there nothing to fear, but some right. people tell us it's a euphoric experience. Absolutely it is. And uh, the only reason it's not euphoric here is that he expected nothing at all. And because right. his death is, 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 is very sudden and, it's, uh, and it's, uh, it's violent. And violent deaths generally are not as pleasant as a slower death of cancer, let's say, that's been well prepared for. So and, and it takes a little bit more. Things, yes, but not knowing, not knowing what's going to happen right. makes it a frightening experience. It does. Um, it, it really can. And that's one of the things you, wanted, you and I want to do is to make it less frightening. <laughs> and there's no reason it should be frightening um, no. for, again, just decent people. There's every reason to expect wonderful things, fascinating world ahead of us. Um, that's a that's kind of a wonderful way to sort of come toward the end of our time together. I so enjoyed this, and we're going to ask Dr. Betty to come back just um, primarily to talk even more about his book and what some of the revelations are in his book. From um, and let, let me just tell you briefly about this book, which I just have read. And I'm so excited about it because I didn't have it when I wrote mine. It's called The Afterlife Unveiled. It actually came out after mine did, and in it, Dr. Betty has taken channeled communications, famous ones, seven different ones, um, and and sort of summarize the best parts of them. Now, for you to get this information that's in this little slim book called The Afterlife Unveiled by Stafford Betty, if you to get this information, you'd have to pull together these seven books, which are available, but they're old, most of them, and, um, and in some cases you wouldn't even know what to look for. And then you'd have to read them all. And frankly, I found the oldest ones intimidating myself when I did my my work um, because I, I think I wasn't as sophisticated as you were, and I didn't know what to pull out. And I was uh, uh, some of these communicators are very high level beings, and uh, and I was not. So, um, to the, Dr. Betty makes this information 
accessible, which to me is the most important thing that any of us can do. These these beings who are communicating with us have extraordinary information to impart, but they don't, it's been so long in some cases uh, since they were here, or the gap in terms of spiritual development is so great between us and them that they're not even quite sure how to express themselves to us. So um, to, the way to get this information is just to buy this book, The Afterlife Unveiled, Stafford Betty. It's a really quick read, and, and frankly, I think it's indispensable. I'm so glad I, I'm so glad I had to read it because I really, really enjoyed it. Um, Dr. Betty will be back with us within, I hope, three or four weeks. We and I need to talk about that. Um, okay. We can, we can finish this conversation and, as I say, talk about more of what's in the book itself. Um, or we can talk about things that are not in the book, too. There's no reason to uh, restrict <laughs> us to that. Um, there's just so much to talk about that we haven't even touched the, the surface of yet. We, ha- we haven't scratched the surface. Um, That's right. I- I've, had, I've had Gary Schwartz on, I think, three times, or maybe I'm about to have him on the third time. Because we <laughs> had the same problem. This is such an enormous field um, that people who have spent a lot of time studying the evidence and studying the field uh, can talk for days and finish each other's sentences because we all, of course, have come to the same conclusions since yeah. we've studied the same information. Um, and, and it makes it fun, I think, to to sort of be in this collegial group. I, I enjoy it very much. Um, but we're but thank you, Dr. Betty, so much. We're, we've come to the end of our time together this time. Um, I'm Roberta Grimes. My books are The Fun of Dying, Find Out What Really Happens Next, and that's available on Amazon. But also, I've just come out with three books that are the first of seven in the Letters from Love novels. The first is My Thomas. This is a reprint of a Doubleday 1993 novel. It's the true story of Thomas Jefferson's Extraordinary marriage. Um, you've never read a love story like this one, and the best part is it's true. I've also just put out Letter from Freedom and Letter from Money, which are the beginning of a series of which explore, explore what I've learned from the afterlife evidence about how the dead are telling us we can make human life finally perfect, make life work. All are available on Amazon.com, and the, the three most recent are available at bookstores everywhere. Again, Dr. Betty's book is The Afterlife Unveiled. I urge you to read it. Um, it's a lot of fun. And please join us next week. Our guest will be Dr. Rochelle Wright. She's a therapist who's helping people have healing experiences of close contact with their beloved dead. She'll be demonstrating her magic at the New Developments in Afterlife Communication ASCI conference in July. Please, So please join us next week. Meanwhile, please join us at afterlifeforums.com and enjoy the discussion. And now, go out and enjoy and make the most of this coming week in our one reality, knowing that you are an eternal being and you are infinitely loved. You've been listening to Seek Reality with Roberta Grimes. Joyous conversations about your eternal life. To learn more, tune in every Saturday at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern. For lively and positive discussions, visit www.afterlifeforums.com. To contact Roberta, email her at roberta at seekreality.com. Wishing you a productive week empowered by the truth of who you really are.